Sunset Productions presents an Atlanta Radio Theater Company dramatic production. H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. before we start the interview. Mm. Are you nervous, Professor Dyer? Uh, I have spoken on the radio before, Miss Ashton. A good many times, in fact. Not for the last 15 years, though. No, not for the last 15 years. Now, we're going to transcribe the interview for later broadcast. You don't have to worry about any of that. It's just mm. like making a live broadcast. Are you ready, Charlie? We'll need a sound check. This is Alice Ashton of WCTH, the voice of New England. How's that? Fine. Say something, Doc. Uh, what do you want me to say? Just uh, anything. He needs to make sure the mics are adjusted. <coughs> uh, this is Howard Dyer, a professor emeritus of geology at Miskatonic University of Arkham, Massachusetts. Okay, that's fine. This is much more convenient than transcribing the disc. Yes, I imagine so. Levels are good. little echo in here, but it won't hurt anything. I can play with it before we go on the air anyway. Okay. Ready anytime you are, Miss Ashton. All right. Are you comfortable, Professor? Mm, yes, I suppose so. Rolling, Charlie. Ready? And. Alice Ashton interviewing Professor Howard Dyer at his home in Arkham, Massachusetts, January 5th, 1946. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your reporter, Alice Ashton, broadcasting from the home of Professor Howard Dyer in Arkham, Massachusetts. Welcome to New England News, Dr. Dyer. Uh, thank you, Miss Ashton. Uh, I am grateful for the opportunity to speak. As our listeners will remember, you were a celebrity before the war. In fact, some people feel you were as famous as Admiral Byrd. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Well, I'm sure your colleagues at Miskatonic University think of you as a celebrity. You led the famous Dyer expedition of 1930 to Antarctica. Yes, I was responsible for that disaster. Perhaps our younger listeners need to be reminded that several of your exploration team unfortunately died on that expedition. Yes, far too many. And if the planned renewal of Antarctic exploration goes forward, many more will die. Perhaps everyone. Everyone on the projected bird expedition, you mean? Everyone on Earth. The Miskatonic expedition of 15 years ago was the first to reach the mountains. The, the, the mountains of madness, poor young Danforth called them. And there we found such terror that as head of the project I chose to keep silence. But now that the war is over and expeditions are planned once again, I, I must speak. We sailed from Boston Harbor on September 2nd, 1930 taking a leisurely course down the coast and through the Panama Canal. The expedition team commanders included Professors Pabody and Lake of the Miskatonic Biology Department, Atwood of the Physics Department, and as leader of the expedition, myself, representing geology. We had, besides, 16 assistants and mechanics, four Dornier airplanes, and the materials and equipment 
for two entire seasons of Antarctic exploration. Among the graduate students who accompanied us was poor Stephen Danforth, my chief assistant and pilot. On November 7th, Danforth and I were at the rail as our ship passed Franklin Island. Bleak, isn't it, Dr. Dyer? Bleak and forbidding, Danforth, and a little frightening. Like the plateau of Lang. I beg your pardon? The cold wastes of places of terror, and none more so than that dread upland plateau of Lang, the frozen place where the old ones walk. That's from the Necronomicon. Oh, yes. I've never read that. Strange how the old myth cycles all see the frozen poles as places of terror. You know, Edgar Allan Poe's The Narrative of A. Gordon Pym reaches its terrible climax at the South Pole. And he Danforth, that... if you would pay more attention to your geology texts and uh, less to works of uh, popular fiction, you would be a better student. <laughs> Though perhaps not as interesting. Stephen Danforth, isn't he the one who... Yes, Miss Ashton, permanently and completely, and I blame myself. And when did it happen? Not right away. We established our base camp on the Great Ross Ice Barrier on November the 9th. I need not repeat what the newspapers at the time reported. Our ascent of Mount Erebus, our successful mineral borings, our tests of Pabody's new ice-melting apparatus. Our progress was remarkable through the exploration flight of January the 6th, 1931 when Lake, Pabody, Daniels, six of the students and myself flew directly over the South Pole in two of the planes. Lake's plane was blown off course on the return leg, and that was the occasion when he glimpsed the mysterious uncharted mountain range. From then on, the mountains were his obsession, his obsession and his doom. Previously, Lake had discovered incredibly ancient fossils in the high, dry valleys near Mount Erebus. Now he was afire to explore this great unknown mountain range. Dyer, we must mount a sub-expedition to the mountains. Already we've discovered the first Precambrian fossils ever recovered. Who knows what we may find if we locate fossiliferous strata. Gedney agrees with me. Yes, in fact, I do. If you'll give us the planes... Wait, and... wait, gentlemen. We have already set our agenda for exploration, and I cannot... We set change... our schedule before discovering the fossils. But we'll lose time, and it'll mean splitting the party. Who would go on the southwestern expedition, Lake? Uh, myself, of course, mm. and, and Gedney. Uh, Carol is chief pirate... Moulton, Atwood, some of the students say a dozen men at all. A dozen? You'll leave us with only eight men at the base station? But, Dr. Dyer, your major exploration won't begin until February, and by then we should... Please, Gedney. Lake, I couldn't possibly allow you to take all four planes. What if a storm damaged them all? How would you get back? That's hardly likely. Besides, they're the dog sleds. We could use all four planes in rotation to establish a base camp, then send two back to you. I allowed myself to be persuaded. In the end, a dozen of our men left on the lake expedition. Within a week, Lake had established a camp near the foothills of the great unknown range. He sent two of the aircraft back to us at the main base, and he set out on his explorations. At uh, about 4 p.m., January the 18th, the wireless operator came to me in a state of high excitement. Lake was reporting in, and what he had to say was indeed most extraordinary. 
We've completed an airplane survey of the higher reaches. About 20,000 feet, the mountains are almost free of snow and ice, and the rock surfaces appear to be of Jurassic and conventional limestones with intrusions of Triassic and Permian slates. We are establishing a drilling camp on an outcrop of sandstone. All day, the reports continued. The sandstone gave way to Comanchean limestone, and then, to the surprise of all... Late reporting. A few minutes ago, Gedney came in to tell me the drilling apparatus has broken through into a cave, and the bit has come up with bits of cephalopods, corals, peripheral, fossils in great abundance. We are preparing to blast an opening that will allow us to descend into the cave. And they did so. It became obvious that the opening was no cave, but in fact a tunnel, extending indefinitely in both directions. Stalactites and stalagmites sprouted abundantly, but the most important find was the incredible profusion of bones, washed down from unknown jungles of Mesozoic tree ferns and fungi, forests of tertiary cycads, fan palms, and primitive angiosperms. The bones comprised a cross-section of millions of years of life. There were shark teeth and dinosaur vertebrae, pterodactyl wing bones, remains of primitive mammals. There was nothing like it in the history of paleontology. And then came the discovery of one fossil that no one could explain. Gedney here. Professor Lake is at the site. He wanted me to report the finding of a star-shaped fragment, about six inches across and an inch and a half thick. It is of a greenish soapstone. It is like a five-pointed star, with four of the points broken off, and oddest of all, it seems to have been worked, though the level it comes from would place it during the age of dinosaurs. We will check in again in three hours. Professor Dyer, correct me if I'm wrong, but you never reported any of this before. I've never mentioned it, Miss Ashton, but with the United States government now planning more Antarctic exploration... I must break my silence. Did you bring back any of these unusual fossils? We did not. However, we have some very remarkable photographs and other supporting evidence, evidence which the public has never seen. Did you learn what kind of a fossil the star-shaped item was? Oh, yes. We learned its nature. It was not a fossil at all, but something else, something made. And would to God we'd never discovered the terrible secret. Our next report from the expedition was also from Gedney and also delivered in tones of the utmost excitement. Gedney reporting for the Lake Expedition. At 10.15 p.m., Orndorff and Watkins, working underground with light, found a monstrous barrel-shaped fossil of wholly unknown nature. Dr. Lake believes it is probably vegetable, unless it is an overgrown specimen of some unknown marine radiata. The peculiar thing is that it seems more frozen than petrified. Over... Extraordinary. Gedney, can you describe the specimen? Over. The tissues are leathery, but astonishingly flexible. It is to six feet from end to end, three feet, eight inches central diameter, tapering to one foot at each end. It's like a barrel with five bulging ridges in place of stays. Lateral breakages as the thin stalks are at the equator in the middle of the ridges. In the furrows between the ridges are curious growths, like combs or wings that fold up or spread out like fan. Only one is complete, but it opens to a seven-foot spread. My God, the elder things. I didn't get that bait. Please repeat, over. 
Uh, nothing, Gedney. Continue. Over. That is all for now. Dr. Lake or I will be on the air again in two hours. Lake Expedition out. What did you say, Danforth? The Elder Things, Professor. What Gedney was describing matched the descriptions of the Elder Things. The great old ones in primal myth and in the Necronomicon. Oh, really, Danforth? I I I'm sorry, Professor Pavity, but the fact is the descriptions are the same. Exactly the same. Over the next 24 hours, we heard more news of the monstrous creatures. The Lake Expedition discovered a cluster of them, 13 in all, each beneath one of those curious star-shaped soapstone carvings. For, for by now, it was clear that the stars were carven stone, not organic fossils. Eight of the creatures were curiously perfect, as, as Lake reported by radio. We have brought the last of the creatures into camp. We're having trouble with the dogs. They can't endure the new specimens and would probably tear them to pieces if we didn't keep them at a distance. Over. Lake, will you transport these fossils to the base camp? Over. No, base. Not yet. First we will dissect one. These barrels were some of the strangest things I've ever seen. I, I cannot determine whether they are vegetable or animal. A, a dissection is imperative. Over. Lake, how on earth can you dissect a fossil? Over. <laughs> These are not, repeat, not fossils, Bates. They are preserved specimens, frozen by the incredibly low temperatures. I will thaw one out slowly and then dissect it. Lake expedition, out. What did the dissection reveal, Dr. Dyer? It was puzzling, Miss Ashton. The creatures stood six to eight feet tall in life, and the extremities were star-shaped organs, a head at one end, or so Lake assumed, and an arrangement of legs and feet at the other. The head bore five reddish feeding tubes and five yellow breathing tubes. The body, in addition to the incredible wings, bore five bundles of manipulating tentacles. The star organ at the base had legs measuring four feet in length with a triangular-shaped uh, pseudo-foot at the end of each of the five legs. All was incredibly tough and resilient. Lake concluded, somewhat hastily, that the creatures were animal in nature, uh, probably a fantastically advanced evolution of the radiata. And from what period of prehistory did this creature come? Was it on Earth when the dinosaurs lived? Uh, Lake could not say. He was aghast at the monstrosity, so primitive in form but with an incredibly advanced nervous system, and it appeared to be perfectly amphibious at home in either air or water. He told us he was preparing to dissect a second creature, and that was the last communication we had from Professor Lake. What happened to him? We did not know, Miss Ashton. When the Lake Expedition missed two scheduled radio times, we had a council of war about them. I say we should give them one more chance to respond, and then send a rescue party. There may have been a storm. I agree, but I cannot send both of our remaining airplanes. That would be madness, particularly if the weather is bad. I will take a plane, Zan, and... Uh, no, 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 it's, it's my responsibility. Danforth will fly me to the lake camp. In a pinch, the Dornier should be able to transport everyone back. Yes, if we gas it up completely and get rid of every ounce of extra weight. Then that's my decision. Danforth, get the plane ready. Rip out everything that you can. You'll have four hours. If the lake party does not report in by that time, you and I will fly out to investigate. 
At 7.15 a.m. on January 25th, Danforth and I set off. We carried with us seven dogs, a sledge, emergency food rations and fuel, and a spare wireless outfit. In an emergency, we were prepared to leave everything, including the dogs, if we had to fly wounded men back to the base. We hoped, of course, that we would find that the lake expedition had, had only had difficulty with its short-wave equipment. For four and a half hours, we flew steadily southwestward. Then, for the first time, we saw the extraordinary ramparts of the unknown mountain range. Incredible! How tall would you say they are, Dr. Dyer? I... I don't know, Danforth. Mm, Everest is out of the running, that's for certain. Some of those peaks must be 35,000 feet above sea level. They're... they're witch-like. Bleak and barren black. What are those? Those cubes? Where? All around the summits, Doctor. Like blocks clinging to the sides of the peaks. They're too regular to be geological. Yes, I see them now. I see, but I can't understand them, Danforth. No more than you can. You know, the anthropologists have placed the plateau of Leng in Central Asia. But now I don't know. I believe you were right about the Necronomicon, Professor Dyer. What do you mean? I wish I'd never read the damn book. We found the camp and landed uh, amid a scene of devastation. All the tents were down, all the dogs dead, and we... <coughs> We found other bodies, too. Eleven men dead. <coughs> Young Gedney was missing. <coughs> are you all right, Professor Dyer? Charles, kill the tape. I've cut it already. Professor, are you all right? Yes. <coughs> yes, excuse me. <coughs> I'll get a glass of water. <coughs> uh, would either of you like something to drink? No, thank you, Professor. No, I'm fine, thanks. What a nutcase. Is this guy senile? He's about 70. And I thought this was going to be a boring story. Uh, you don't believe any of this crap, do you? It doesn't matter if I do or don't. It's still a hell of a story. Everyone always thought that it was odd how those people died. And the professor's explanation's a hell of a lot more interesting than the official version. I wonder what's taking him so long. I bet he's drinking more than water. You getting all this recorded? Sure. <laughs> How much of it you can use? I apologize, Miss Ashton. Sometimes I, I get overwrought when I remember what we found. That's all right, Professor. Are you ready to start again? Uh, yes, thank you. Where, where were we? Just a second and we'll pick up again. Charlie, let me know when you're rolling. Okay, ready and... Professor Dyer... What did you find when you landed at the expedition camp? The place was a shambles. All the tents were down. Mm -hmm. The equipment scattered. Eleven men were dead and one, Mr. Gedney, was missing. And the dogs, too, all seemed to be dead. Seemed to be dead, Professor? Yes, Miss Ashton. They, they were in ribbons, torn to pieces... We assumed that all of them had been killed. It was difficult to make uh, an accurate count. Uh, you reported that the lake expedition had been overwhelmed by a sudden storm. So I did. 
And with no other witness, uh, no other sane witness, everyone accepted that explanation. But God help me, I lied. What did you really find, Dr. Dyer? The camp really had been pulverized. All tents were down, all bodies frozen. But they had not died of a storm. Their backs had been snapped like twigs, and the dogs had been literally ripped apart. Curiously, both planes were intact, as was the fuel dump. All the books, most of the fossil specimens were there. Most, but not all. I don't understand. What killed the men? We did not understand either, Miss Ashton. Not then. Not a single one of the complete barrel-shaped monstrosities remained. Those six damaged ones had been buried. Buried standing up, the graves marked with those curious greenish star-shaped stones we had heard about. Danforth and I radioed base camp and arranged for McTie, Sherman, and ropes to fly out and retrieve all the, the remains and the two airplanes. Then we filled our plane's tanks with gasoline and took off, flying toward the mountains, for we had seen an unmistakable track in the snow, as of sledges, and they led up a, a rampart of snow and ice toward those accursed peaks, toward the mountains of madness. Could Gedney have taken a dog sled? Possibly, Danforth. Those may be his tracks leading up into the pass. But how could he have moved so fast? And how could the dogs hold out for such a steep climb? I don't know. But as long as there's a chance he's alive... Oh, there! The trail goes right over the pass. Do you see? Yes, I, I do see. Hold on, Professor. We're at 17,000 feet and this pass is narrow. It's going to be tricky. God! It... it... it's insane! Do you see it, Danforth? Yes, uh, maybe... maybe some, some sort of unknown geological force. No, no, those, those are artificial constructions. They're buildings, Danforth, as far as the eye can see, to the north, to the south. Buildings! It's a huge city. No, no human made those, those, those blasphemous structures. It's a cyclopean maze of squared, curved, and angled blocks. Stone towers and ramparts. Here in a land where, where nothing could have lived for 500,000 years. And the tracks lead here. Oh, there, Danforth. There's a field of level snow. Set the plane down. We'll see if there's any trace of Gedney. Or of any living thing. This is an incredible story, Dr. Dyer. It is not over, Miss Ashton. We did land the airplane in that hellish, silent city. It was a, a tangle of buildings made from prodigious blocks of dark, primordial slate. The general shape tended to be conical or pyramidal, though many were cylindrical, a perfect cube. Some were five-pointed, angled edifices. All was monstrously weathered. What people could have built this city? We did not know. Not then. Uh, many of the buildings had been broken open by eons of weathering, by glaciations. Danforth and I picked up, uh, well, marking suggestions of a trail. We followed it into one of those ruined structures. There we had our second great shock of the day. It's huge, Professor. No sign of poor Gedney. Uh, shine your light on the walls, Danforth. Murals. 
The whole wall is painted and and sculpted. Let's get closer. I can't make out any detail. Uh, watch the floor. There's rubble everywhere. It. My God, the mural shows pictures of the barrel monsters. And so did they all. We had blundered into some kind of incredibly ancient museum or educational institution. There, painted or graven on the walls, was a curious and terrifying history. The history of the elder gods, of the great old ones, the subject of the Necronomicon. I took photographs as long as our flash guns and plates held out, and my incredulous eyes saw in fantastic detail an unbelievable story. In an epoch so remote that not even the Earth yet existed, the great old ones spread their wings and launched themselves forth through endless space. In the darkness they slept, and as they slept, the cold winds of light between the stars swept them onward, slowly onward. After an imaginable time, they chanced upon the third planet from a yellow sun and descended. And they wakened from their long sleep. And the planet had primitive life. And the great old ones found it fit for a place of And they began to control the growth and development of life itself. Dwelling beneath the southern sea, they took the stuff of life and created for themselves servants. Shapeless and formless, these creatures could assume any confirmation that proved useful. And the great old ones saw what they had done. And it was good. It was scarcely to be believed, but the barrel-shaped organisms were indeed the great old ones of myth and legend. And they had created their servants and had made for themselves a mighty city. Shoggoths! My God, Professor, those are Shoggoths! I... I don't understand. The, the, the Necronomicon, it speaks of them. Primordial life without shape but sentient... The great old ones created them, but they turned on their creators and destroyed them. Destroyed Leng. Destroyed this city, the city of Leng. Get a grip on yourself, Danforth. Uh, sorry, sorry, sir. Help me illuminate the next section. All right. For their amusement, the great old ones meddled with the life of their new world and created... The great dinosaurs. Over the millennia, they played with their toys, and when they tired of them, they discarded them for others. The birds of the air. The great whales of the sea. The ridiculous naked ape called man. Eons passed and the old ones thrived. Even when other invaders from beyond the stars threatened them. terrible eons, they did battle with the encroaching Cthuloids and sealed them forever in the dreaming city of Rilia. Lost beneath the decimated the old ones retreated to their last stronghold where their numbers lessened. They saw the continents drift and change. Weary of the long epoch of war, they watched all for their city of Sad by their creations, by the Shalaths. This is... I'm not quite sure what to say about it, Professor Dyer. Oh, I I know how incredible it sounds, Miss Ashton. But I have the photographs, photographs that I never dared reveal until now. And in my own mind, I am quite certain we human beings are not the product of divine creation or of normal evolution. 
We are descended from the... the toys the great old ones created for their amusement. We are... discards, Miss Ashton. That is the only word. As we followed the incredible tale on the murals, we descended, and as we did so, the story changed. The Shoggoths at some point began to rebel against their masters, even to take on the shapes of the old ones to speak with their voices. And as the history of the Plateau of Ling continued, the murals grew more and more crude, more decadent. They told of a world losing warmth, of the old one's retreat to a sunless sea, a great underground ocean as the continent of Antarctica cooled and froze, and as the rebellious Shagoths became more and more troublesome. All the while, we descended until... Professor Dyer, there... Is, is that... Uh, one of the sledges from the camp. And there, against the wall, there's something under that tarpaulin. Oh, my God. It's Gendy. He's been ripped apart. No. Dissected, Danforth. He's been scientifically dissected. And the sled dog as well. Oh, over here. More sledges. All of them packed. Oh, let me cover Gedney again. God rest his soul. Lake was right. They weren't fossils, Danforth. They weren't fossils after all. The creatures that Lake found were, were sleeping. What's the sleep of 500,000 years to a, a creature that can survive the vacuum of, of outer space for a drift of a billion years? Uh, that, that stench. We must go forward. Professor, no, no. We must. We're scientists, Danforth. And we are men. <laughs> The, the, the underground sea. This, this is where the great old ones fled to the dark waters. Not all of them. You see there, that huge barrel-shaped form down the slope? And over there. Dead. Five, six, there's another and another. All seven dead with, with their heads ripped away. That green, stinking ichor. Let's go. What about... What about Gedney's body? There's, there's nothing we can do for him now. Come on, Danforth, we must hurry. Something there, behind us. Down in that dark water, it's, it's, it's moving. Run for it! It's coming after us! Run! No, no, this way! South Station! What? Oh, hurry, man! Boston Common! Washington Station! Park Street Station! Quiet, Danforth. Danforth Station. We aren't in the subway. Copley Square. Here, here in this niche. Quiet for your life. Quiet. How can I describe it? It was the utter objective embodiment of the fantastic novelist thing that should not be. A, a, a great black plastic mass. Plastered over with, with eyes forming, dissolving, reforming. It, luminous, but with shades not known on our earth. Filling the entire tunnel, a shapeless mass of, of protoplasmic bubbles. Filling the air with an indescribable stench. And crying out in a piping, weird voice. Mocking the voices of the great old ones, I think. 
a hateful, high-pitched cry of... Somehow or other, it missed us. After it passed, Danforth and I fled madly for the surface. And after what seemed like hours, we reached it. Our airplane was there, intact, and Danforth had enough self-control to fly it. But even then, his mind was slipping away and he babbled. <laughs> the Necromachus speaks of such things. The primal white jelly. The eyes in the darkness. The color out of space. Tekalili. Tekalili. The great old ones and the dwellers in darkness. The mountains, Professor. The mountains of madness. Tekalili. Tekalili. A miracle. We reached base camp. Danforth smashed up the plane in attempting to land, but neither of us was badly hurt. Pabody and I conferred and agreed on the story that we released, that a storm had overwhelmed Lake and his men. And the truth has not come out until today. I understand that to this day, Stephen Danforth is an inmate of Arkham Asylum. Yes, he's insane. Completely, hopelessly mad. And you wish to warn everyone against returning to Antarctica because you fear they will meet more of the great old ones. Good God, no! What, didn't I make it plain? Don't you see? The great old ones no longer exist. They're extinct. Their hidden underground world has been taken over by the Shoggoths, by those ever-hungry semi-sentient masses of protoplasm. They defeated the great old ones, devoured them. And they wait there, in the cold, in the darkness. They wait for us. But the old ones killed your friends. According to you, they, they even dissected one of them. Yes. As the great old ones escaped, trying to find their ancient home, they did kill. Yes, they took one body and dissected it, as a human scientist would, for the sake of knowledge. Oh, don't you see, Miss Ashton? Those seven living creatures returned to a place where they thought they would find their own kind. And instead they found horror. You almost sound sorry for them. I am sorry for us all. Poor Danforth. Poor Lake. Poor Gedney. And poor old ones. After all, they, they were not evil things of their kind. What had they done? That awful awakening in the cold of an unknown epoch, attacked by furry quadrupeds surrounded by the, the hairless apes they themselves had created. Yes, they killed, but then they studied scientists to the last. What had they done, Miss Ashton, that we would not have done in their place? God, what intelligence and persistence! Radiance, vegetables... Spawn, whatever they had been, Miss Ashton, they were men. They were men. They were men. In Arkham, Massachusetts, this is Alice Ashton reporting for WCTH. We now return you to our studio. <laughs> 